Well, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. We're continuing to look at Philippians chapter 2, so if you haven't opened your Bibles to that section, please do so. We're going to take a look at two verses today, verses 12 and 13. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, best of all books, thy sacraments, the best of all gifts, the communion of saints, the best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back again. Philippians chapter 2, please, verses 12 and 13. We'll go ahead and read through those verses, and then I'll make some preliminary comments before we dive in 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 a deeper way. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're going to take a look at that whole idea of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What exactly does Paul mean by that? Well, it's important to remember the context and recall the fact that, again, as I've said many times before, but we sometimes forget because these books are divided into chapters, we have to remember that that was not the way the letter was originally written. These chapter divisions in the Gospels and particularly in the epistles They came in at a much later point in history. They were put in by medieval monks in order to make it easier for people to memorize large portions of Scripture. But when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, of course, there were no chapter divisions. One thought flowed into the next, and that's very important. So what Paul says here in verses 12 and 13, you have to remember it is flowing immediately from the section that we looked at last week this first part of chapter 2, in which Paul has this magnificent hymn of kenosis, this, this great story of Christ emptying himself. And we said those first 11 verses are packed full of deep doctrine and theology. In fact, this is almost like a crash course in theology. Practically every major Christian doctrine is right there in just those 11 verses. Paul talks, for example, about the fact that that Christ had a glory before the creation of the earth, that he was one with the Father. He talks about the fact that even though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, actually took the form of a slave. That's what the Greek says. And he was born in the likeness of men. He was like us in every respect. He dealt with frustration, he dealt with weariness, he dealt with all of the things that you and I deal with, including temptation. He was like us in every respect except for one, he did not fall prey to temptation. He did not sin. But not only was he like us, uh, he humbled himself to the point of dying, dying on our behalf and dying the most ignominious death imaginable, even the death of the cross. So you have the message of Christ 
deity there. You have the message of Christ's incarnation, his coming down and becoming man. You have the message of his walking among us, his humility. We have the story of his death upon the cross, an atoning sacrifice for us, vicarious suffering on our behalf. You have the message of Christ's exaltation, of how he was raised up on the third day and then ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he sits in majesty and where he will come again, so that at that point every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is a magnificent section, as I said, packed full of great teaching. But one of the things you'll learn about the Apostle Paul, the more you study Paul, is that Paul was not just interested in esoteric theology. Paul was not just interested in being so heavenly-minded that he was of no earthly good to anyone. Paul always believed that these great teachings, these great truths, these great doctrines always have practical application. So while we are sort of on the mountaintop in those first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2, you have to remember that mountaintops are for one purpose more than anything else. They are designed to help us through the valleys. In other words, you can't stay on the mountain. You can have these wonderful mountaintop experiences spiritually, and that's what we have in the first 11 verses, but you have to remember that while we have mountaintop experiences, you can't live on the mountain. Eventually, you have to come down. This is Paul's way of saying that great doctrine always leads to a difference in the way we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. In other words, this is not just an exercise in some sort of academic study. This is meant to make a difference in the way we live our lives here on earth. I think you have a powerful picture of this, an event from the Lord's own life. Uh, if you keep your finger there in Philippians and you turn back to Matthew chapter 17, you have this magnificent story of the transfiguration. You're no doubt familiar with that story. We're told that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And we're told that he was transfigured before their eyes. In fact, we're told that his, he became glorious there was this, this cloud that enveloped him. Many scholars believe that this is reminiscent of the Shekinah glory that had enshrouded the temple in the Old Testament. It's like that pillar of cloud that led the people while they were wandering in the wilderness, but it was the glory of God. And Jesus was transfigured. His, his clothing became dazzling white, whiter than any fuller on earth could bleach them. And we're told that as he was there, suddenly Moses and Elijah, these two great representatives of the Old Testament tradition, the law and the prophets, they appeared there alongside Jesus, talking with him. And the disciples were so overwhelmed by this that they trembled with fear. And Peter blurted out, Lord, let us build three booths for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for for you. It's as though he wanted to somehow capture the glory and the majesty of it all. And it's really interesting, toward the end of his life, when Peter was facing the prospect of his own death, which would be by crucifixion, upside down, as he was anticipating that and, and facing the prospect of his own death, he looks back to these times with Jesus to draw strength and to draw courage. And you would have thought that he would have hearkened back to Easter, to the story of the Lord's resurrection, 
or perhaps to that moment on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus rescued him from drowning. But no, Peter tells us that when he thought back to a moment that gave him strength, that gave him courage to face the days ahead, he remembered this moment on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured, when he saw, when he beheld the glory of Almighty God. That was an event that absolutely transformed him. It really was a mountaintop experience, literally and figuratively. But what I find very interesting is what happens next in the narrative. So you have this magnificent experience of the disciples beholding Jesus in his glory. But look at verse 14 of Matthew chapter 17. It says, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on me. For my son is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. So you have this experience where Peter and James and John are up there on the mountain. They encounter Christ in all of his glory, the glory that he had had with the Father before the foundations of the earth. And it was such a magnificent experience that it would steal Peter in the days to come. Not only that, but it was so magnificent that Peter wanted to somehow capture it. He wanted to encapsulate it. He wanted to build three booths. The gospel says he didn't even know what he was saying. But sometimes when we have those mountaintop experiences, they're so magnificent, we spend the whole of our lives trying to somehow recapture them. But if Jesus had remained up there on the mountain, what would have happened to this poor boy who was demon-possessed? You see, Christ had to come down the mountain. There's a great depiction of this in artwork. I don't know if you're familiar with this painting, but it's by Raphael, the great Renaissance painter. And you can see that this is the transfiguration. Now, it looks like the ascension because Jesus is hovering above the earth. But you know that it's the transfiguration for a number of reasons. First of all, you can see two figures flanking Jesus, sort of floating in the air as well. Moses on the left, Elijah on the right. And you can see those three disciples that Jesus led up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John. They're down there on their hands and knees, on their faces, because they can see the transcendent glory of Christ, that glow about him. But what I love about this painting is that if you look below, what do you see? You see this afflicted father bringing his demon-possessed boy, the disciples trying to cast the demon out, and they are not able to do it. Christ had to come down from the mountain in order for that boy to be healed. So again, what Paul is saying is something remarkably similar. All of this doctrine... All of this news of Christ being the glorious Son of God who came down for us, who paid the price for our sin, who was resurrected, that is mountaintop stuff, but it should have a practical application. It should make a difference for us down here on earth. In the way we live, it should make a difference down here 
in the valley. And that's why Paul no sooner talks about all of that glorious stuff than he goes on to say to the Philippians, now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The fact that Christ is the Son of God, the fact that Christ came down, the fact that Christ took on human flesh and walked among us, the fact that Jesus Christ mounted the arms of the cross and paid the full sacrifice for your sin and for mine, delivering us from the power of death, the fact that he rose again for our justification, the fact that he sits right now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, interceding on our behalf, Paul says that should make a difference for the way you live down here on earth. If this is just an academic exercise, you've missed the point of the Christian life. Therefore, he says, that therefore is the transition. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, in light of these things, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what Paul says here has sometimes been misunderstood. When he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it has led some people to believe that you and I have to work for our salvation. That by golly, we better get our act together. In light of the fact that what Christ has done, he's going to come one day to judge the quick and the dead, and we had better be in a right relationship with him, so we had better work at it. Isn't that what Paul says? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You better get on it. And so there has been this misunderstanding that what Paul is really advocating is salvation by our own efforts, by our own works. And indeed, there are many people out there in the world today who think that if they live a good enough life, they will curry favor with God and they will be granted entrance into heaven. Is that actually what Paul is teaching, however? Well, one of the principles of good biblical interpretation is to remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. Paul is not going to say one thing in one place and then contradict himself somewhere else. So keep your finger there in Philippians for just a moment and turn back one book to your left to Ephesians chapter 2. And let's look at what Paul says about how a person obtains salvation. Do they actually work for it? Do they have to work it out with fear and trembling? Well, here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We've talked about what grace is. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. It's not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can obtain by your own efforts. He says you're saved by grace through faith. That is trust. And then he goes on to be very clear. In case you don't understand that, he's very explicit. He says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Now think about that. Paul is emphatic there. He has said as you are saved by grace, not by works. It's not your own doing so that no one may boast. It is a what? It is the gift of God. So if Paul is telling us in Ephesians that it is a gift, 
clearly a gift, not something that we earn, not something that we deserve, not something that we obtain by our own efforts, then what does he really mean when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? If Paul is not going to contradict himself, then what is he saying? Well, I want you to notice how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, work out your own salvation. He does not say, work for your salvation. He does not say, work at your salvation. He does not say, work toward your salvation. He says what? He says, work out your salvation. Now, in order to work it out, it has to be in there in the first place. In order to work it out, it has to first be worked in. You see, what Paul is saying is that we have been delivered from something, from the power of sin, from the penalty for sin, which is death. We have been delivered from judgment, but we have been delivered for something. I mean, that's what he says. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. But then he goes on to say this in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is saying here in Philippians what he was saying in Ephesians, just in slightly different language. You've been saved by grace. It's not something that you earn. You are powerless to save yourself, but God, who is rich in mercy, makes you alive even when you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You've been saved by grace through faith, not by works, but now that you've been saved and you've been given this gift, you are to put it to work. Now, if you think about it, this story of what happens to us in salvation is very similar to the story of Israel in the Old Testament. And incidentally, that's what the nation of Israel is meant to be a picture of. Israel is, in a sense, a shadow of the church that is to come. What happened to the nation of Israel is what happens to us as individuals from a spiritual point of view. Now, Israel's story can be divided into these parts. The first part is that they were enslaved. You know the story that they were enslaved in Egypt, they were forced to make bricks without straw. They were in bondage. And God did what? God determined to deliver them. He determined to deliver them. He saw their suffering. He saw their affliction. And he raised up a liberator in the man Moses. So they were enslaved. He raised up a champion for them, Moses. Moses went, confronted Pharaoh. And by a series of signs and wonders, God delivered his people out of their bondage, delivered them through the Red Sea. So they were enslaved. They were delivered not because of anything that they had done, but because God had set his affection upon them. And then when they are delivered from their bondage by signs and wonders, they're led out into the wilderness. Now, you know, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And they are still tempted. Even though they have been delivered, even though they are no longer slaves, that does not mean that there is still not within them this desire to return to their old way of living. 
Even though they were slaves, there were times when even slavery looked better than the freedom that they were enjoying out there in the wilderness. In fact, in Numbers chapter 11, there is the story of how the Israelites grumbled because they didn't have the same kind of food out there in the wilderness to eat that they had had even as slaves back in Egypt. They still longed for the fish and for the leeks and for all of the things that they had had. But what was God doing? Even there in that wilderness period, he was shaping them. He was honing them. He was transforming them into the kind of people who were going to do what? who were going to take possession of the land that he had prepared for them. And how were they supposed to live in that land? They were to live differently from the people around them. They were to be a light to the pagan peoples around them. Well, if you think about it, that is a picture of exactly what God has done for us. Deuteronomy sums up the way God had worked in the nation of Israel beautifully. Go back, if you will, to one of the first books of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, just listen to the story of how God delivered his people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? Why did God choose them? Because they were great people? Because they were a good people? Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and statutes and the rules that I command you today. In light of the fact that you were enslaved, in light of the fact that God delivered you, in light of the fact that God shaped you and honed you and led you into this promised land and drove out your enemies before you, therefore... It's the same word Paul uses, same English translation. Therefore, be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God had delivered his people, and because he had delivered them, transformed them, given them a land, defended them from their enemies, therefore they were to live differently. Well, that is the way it is with you and me. You and I are to live differently. We were enslaved. What? In bondage to sin. The very things we want to do, we do not do. And the very things we hate, those are the things we have done. But God saved us, didn't he? If you're a Christian, you know this is true. It may sound as though you sought him, but if you look back over the course of your life, what you really realize is that God had saved you. He had been seeking you long before you sought him. Now, as a Christian, you still have that temptation. There are still those 
old thoughts, those old desires, the old nature that still wells up within us from time to time. We still want to go back to the leeks and to the fish of our old ways of living. But God has shaped and honed us. And what is he doing as he shapes and hones us in this earthly pilgrimage? He is preparing us to be the kind of people who are prepared to receive the promised land. So as he's doing that, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? We are to put our salvation to work. That's what Paul really means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, it's already there. You already have it. It is a gift, but you are to use it. The people of Israel were to be a light to enlighten the nations. The glory of the people of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. And you and I, if we're really saved, are supposed to live in a way that sheds light in this darkened world. That's what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But what's interesting is in verse 13, he goes on to add this second part. It sounds at the first part as though it's all our effort. Yes, salvation is a gift, but then after that, it's up to us. But Paul adds this. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Salvation is a gift from God, freely given. But once it's given, you and I have a job to do. But sometimes the job can seem overwhelming, Herculean. Paul says, take heart because even as you seek to put your salvation to work, you can be confident that it is God who works in you. It is God who will give you the strength, the courage, the wherewithal, even the desire to live differently. Now, the reason why God has to give you the desire, God has to give you the strength, God has to give you the wherewithal is because we do not have free will. Now, I know we hear a great deal about free will these days, but actually our will is bound. Martin Luther wrote a treatise on this called The Bondage of the Will. Now, when I say the will is bound, what I mean is that the will is bound in spiritual matters. There's no denying the fact that you and I have free will to do certain things. I mean, you have free will to go to work on Monday morning or call in sick simply because you don't want to go in and do your job. You have the free will to do that. You have free will when you go to a restaurant to choose a salad over a steak or vice versa. You have free will when you decide to plan out your vacation to visit Niagara Falls or to visit Acadia National Park. You have free will to do all of those things. But there are certain things over which you have no ability, no free will. Think about it. You do not have the free will to raise your IQ by 50 points. You do not have free will to run a 100-yard dash in eight seconds. You may have the desire, you may have the opportunity, but you do not have the free will to make a billion dollars. In other words, you have free will in some areas, but you have no freedom when it comes to your intellectual or physical ability. These are God-given things, and you have no ability to change them necessarily. 
while what is true when it comes to our intellectual and physical abilities is also true when it comes to spiritual matters. Go back again to Ephesians. I love these two books, Ephesians and Philippians, because they're short books, unlike Romans or First and Second Corinthians. They're short books, but they are packed full of good teaching. In Ephesians chapter 2, that same chapter in which Paul talks about being saved by grace through faith and not by works, begins with these words, and as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. How does Paul describe us spiritually speaking? Not physically, but spiritually speaking, he says we were dead. The picture here is of a kind of spiritual zombie. You know what a zombie is. It's the living dead. Before Christ intervened in our lives, you and I were physically alive, walking around, making decisions, whether to go to work or play sick, whether to have a salad or a steak, whether to visit Niagara Falls or Acadia National Park. But while we were physically alive, spiritually speaking, we were dead. We could not choose the things of God. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the John Wayne film McClintock, but there's this great scene in McClintock um, where they are at the top of a mud pit. You can see it there in this still from the movie. They're at the top of this mud pit. And what happens is, you know, in one of those Westerns, classic Western style, everybody gets into a big brawl. And the result is that those who are standing on the edge of this pit suddenly find themselves thrown down and covered up in all this mud. It's a hilarious scene. But what makes it even funnier is the fact that once they fall down into the pit, they cannot climb up the slippery slides, sides and get out of it. And so they find themselves completely covered up in it. And there you have John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara just covered up in the mud. It's a wonderful scene in the movie, but this is a wonderful picture too of our spiritual condition. Our first parents, as it were, Adam and Eve, were standing up there on the brow of that mud pit. And they had free will either to stay up there on the brow of the pit or to go down into it. But the problem was this, once they went down into it, there was no way that they could climb back out of it. And there is a sense in which the same is true for you and for me. We have been dragged down into the pit and try as we might, we cannot climb out on our own. We keep sliding back down into it. And what's more, we're covered up in it. That's our spiritual condition before God. And that is why it is necessary that if we're going to be able to do things that we are not able to do now, there has to be this new birth. There has to be a renewal. We have to be, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, born again. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as you know, was the Pharisee who came under the cover of darkness. And he came up to Jesus and he said, Sir, we know that you are a man who has come from God because no one could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. And Jesus immediately says to him, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, why did Jesus tell him this? He told him this because 
unless he was reborn and given new ability. As I said, you and I cannot enhance our physical ability. Well, we can work out and perhaps enhance our, our muscles and we can run a little bit faster, but there are limits to what you and I can do. We can have perhaps improve our knowledge by studying and reading, but there are limits to what we can do. There are certain things, certain thresholds beyond which we cannot go. And the only way for this to change is if we were to be reborn and given a whole new set of abilities. And that is exactly what has to happen to us spiritually. And that's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be reborn. Paul in Titus chapter 3, a small, a relatively unknown letter, speaks of the washing of regeneration. It's that same language of new birth, regeneration. And he uses a particularly interesting Greek word there when he speaks of this washing of regeneration, whereby we become new creations. He uses the Greek word palagenesia. Now, I don't like to always throw out big Greek words, but this is a good one, palagenesia. The Greeks used to believe that history had no point, no purpose. The Greeks believed that history was cyclical. It just went round and round like a carnival barker's wheel. Round and round and round she goes, and where she stops, nobody knows. It's like the seasons of the year. Summer turns into autumn. Autumn turns into winter. Winter turns into spring, and then spring turns back into summer again. And it goes on and on like that forever. But there came a point where the Greeks actually believed that history, the world, having gone on like that for a, a long time, suddenly sort of just winds down. If you have a clock in your house, not an electric clock, but one of those old clocks that you have to wind. We have an old tall case clock or grandfather's clock in our house. We have to wind it up. We have to wind it up every week. And Kristen knows when I've had a very busy week because the clock is dead. And I have to go in there and I have to get out that crank and wind up the clock. Well, the Greeks believe that that's the way the universe operated. It's as though it was wound up, but then it sort of wears itself out and it stops working. At which point the Greeks believed that the universe would just burn up. And they believed that this happened at various points in history. But then they believed that the universe experienced a palagenesia a rebirth, a regeneration, like Phoenix rising from the ashes, the universe would start all over again. And it just went on and on like this over and over again. Well, it's interesting that Paul uses that very same word to describe what has to happen to us. We have to experience what the Greeks believe the universe experienced, that is a palagenesia, a rebirth, a new start, if you're anything like me and you don't have any technical ability when it comes to computers. Now, my saving grace when it comes to this is Rachel Murphy. She fixes everything that goes wrong with my computer. But if you don't have a Rachel and things go wrong, your computer stops working. If you're anything like me, what do you do? You turn it off and you turn it back on again, maybe you do that with your cell phone, and you reboot the system. And God willing, 
everything starts working again. Well, that's what the Greeks believed the universe had to experience, a reboot. And what Paul was saying is that you and I need to experience a reboot. That's why we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but God has to work within us because in and of ourselves, we have not the ability to do it. But when we experience this new birth, this regeneration, this palagenesia, lo and behold, we discover that we had the abilities that we did not have before. We have the ability to begin to live no longer for ourselves, but for the sake of him who died for us and rose again. This is the way St. Augustine put it. Augustine said that man prior to the fall was passe pecare, able to sin. So go back to that image of the mud pit. Adam and Eve are up there on the top of the mud pit. It's a deep mud pit, 20 feet deep. They're up there on the, up there on the, on the edge. And they have the ability to stay on the edge or they have the ability to go down into the mud pit. And we know what happens. They go down into the mud pit, as it were. They ate of the tree of which they were not to eat. But once they were down there in the mud pit, try as they might, they could not come up the sides. They could not climb out of the situation. They were covered up in it. So they had been passe pecari, which means able to sin when they're standing up there on the edge. They hadn't sinned, but they had the ability to. But once they got down into the mud pit, they were non passe, non pecari, Augustine said. They were not able not to sin. They're covered up in it. But he says, once a person experiences this new birth, this palagenesia, this regeneration, they become passe, non pecari, able not to sin. Doesn't mean that they won't, but all of a the sudden they are given the ability, the wherewithal, by God's grace, to live differently. And Paul says that is what we are to do. There's a great hymn that I think captures this beautifully. It was written by Charles Wesley. It's one of my favorite hymns, to be honest with you. It's one of my favorite hymns, not only because the tune is magnificent, but Wesley really captures profound theology. And every verse is pregnant with meaning. Here's what he writes, and it's almost reflecting on what Paul says there in Philippians. He writes, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, who though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and suffered the death of the cross. That's what Paul says. That's what Wesley is saying in that first stanza. He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, and he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave, Paul said emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race, helpless race that can't climb out of the mud pit. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Now here, this third stanza is what Paul is talking about when he says, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Quickening means life-giving. In the creed, we speak of the quick and the dead. The quicker, the living. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. That is to say, I was dead, you raised me to new life. I woke, the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. Now, once the chains are off, what do you do? My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You see how that life-giving power of God makes the fetters fall off. But once the fetters are off, what does that mean for us? It means that we are to begin to live differently. The salvation is nothing that we do. Wesley captures that beautifully. His spirit is imprisoned, fast bound in sin and nature's night. He can't get free. He's like a prisoner chained to the wall. But God sends a quickening ray, a life-giving ray. And as a result of that, his chains fall off. The dungeon flames with light. His chains fall off. His heart is free. But that means there has to be a difference. He's going to rise and follow. And he can do that with confidence, knowing that God is at work in him. Why? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? See, that is the glory of the Christian life, my friends. You and I don't earn our salvation. It is a free gift. But when you're given a gift, you need to use it. I mean, somebody gives you a brand new automobile. What good is it if you never drive it? If somebody deposits a million dollars into your account, what a wonderful, extravagant, lavish gift. But if you never draw on it, what difference does it make? Well, that's what Paul is saying. God has given you this free gift of salvation. Work it out. Put it to work. May this new life that you've experienced, this palagenesia, this regeneration, let it make a difference in the way you live that others may see in you this marvelous gift. And in coming to know you, may come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. That's Paul's great message to you and to me today. So no, he's not saying you work for your salvation. He's not saying you work toward your salvation. He's not saying you work at your salvation. But he is saying you take your salvation, which is a free gift, and you put it to work. You can't stay on the mountain, my friends. We live down here in the valley. Now, I've got more to say, but that would begin a new section, and we would not get through it. So I know we're about 45 minutes, which is a record for me. Um, but we're going to pause right there um, for maybe five minutes or so and see if you have any questions um, 
from time to time, Rachel gets questions. And normally, I don't have a chance at the end of these sessions to go ahead and answer them. Most of the time, I'm talking at you. And you're like drinking out of a fire hydrant. So I want to give you the opportunity, if you'd like, to ask any questions, practical implications of this. I'll give you a chance to either raise your hand. Probably the best thing to do is send in your chat. There should be a chat feature on the bottom of your screen. And Rachel, tell me. OK. Oh, and the other thing is this. Everybody now has the ability to unmute yourself. So if you're more comfortable, um, you could just go to the top of your screen with your cursor and hit unmute, and then you can ask the question rather than send it in via the text. Anybody, or is this like Jesus and the Pharisees? They dare not ask him any questions. <laughs> Reverend, um, what, what is the name of the last hymn by Charles Wesley? Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Repeat the question. Um, um, what What is the name of the last hymn that you quoted by Charles Wesley? Right. The hymn is entitled, And Can It Be? Okay, thank you. A-N-D, Can It Be? And, and, and also, thank you for... You know, Charles Wesley was an extraordinary individual. Um, he was a clergyman in the Church of England, brother of John Wesley. He, um, this is the interesting thing about him. He was a clergyman before he was converted. He would tell you that. Unlike his brother, who was a great preacher, Charles Wesley was musically inclined. But what was really fascinating about him is that prior to his conversion, even though he tried, he never wrote a single hymn. After his conversion, brace yourself, he wrote 6,500 of them, 6,500 hymns. And some of them are the most famous hymns in the history of the church. Hark the herald angels sing, and can it be? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my dear Redeemer's praise. Great hymns. In fact, somebody has said that any church that has Watson Wesley has the best music in the English So Charles Wesley, but that's the name of the hymn, and can it be? Okay, got a question? So what is our part in salvation is the question that has come in. Great question. The answer is, our part is, we are in, in a sense, we are the, the receivers of this gift. So God saves us. Um, people who are dead cannot do anything for themselves. That's, that's the power of what Paul says in Ephesians. You're dead in your trespasses and in your sin. God makes us alive. But once he makes us alive, our part is to then to begin to put that salvation to work, to begin to live differently. But salvation itself is a gift. We receive it by faith, but you don't do anything to earn it. It's not a gift if you have to buy it or purchase it or earn it. So it is a free gift offered to us. We receive it by faith, and then we begin to use it for God's glory. Any other questions? 
Well, if not, then you're going to get an early lunch hour, ladies and gentlemen, today. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. But thank you for joining me. And we will come back together again uh, next week and continue our study of Philippians. But it's good to see you and uh, wonderful to spend time with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy and for the glory that this great epistle to the Philippians brings into our lives. It's a reminder to us that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. It is a free gift offered, free for us, but it costs Jesus Christ everything. But once we receive this gift, we are to use it. So grant us the grace to begin to live differently, to begin to live in the power of the resurrection, that others may see in us the light of Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.